you'll be no <laughs> so you'll be nowhere without me. <laughs> but, <laughs> so rewilding the mind. So if you're you're interested in these ecology projects, you probably recognise there's this uh, theme where they take a piece of, you know, a few hundred thousand acres or so of land that's been either over over cultivated or used industrially, so it's pretty dead. And then, well, let's try to bring this back to life again. And so, you know, there's several processes in that. One is you just stop putting in the the damage. <laughs> and then you <coughs> stop creating <coughs> then you start you can't just leave it like that you can't just take the fences down and pull up the the concrete or the tidy it up you actually have to often have to reintroduce things you know either native species or you know plants or animals and maybe clean out some of the channels of the of the rivers so you have to do something it's not just let it be the way it is and then it starts to come back into a balanced state. So, similarly with rewilding the mind, we're not going to be going talking about going crazy so much as becoming more in tune with with nature. And that means, first of all, we've been say recognizing there is a ground, something whereby there's something another quality potential that we have access to, which isn't the same as our normal programs and normal conditioned structures and programs and ways of seeing things, you know. And then we begin to also recognize those ways of seeing things have actually been rather limiting, uh, sometimes acutely painful, sometimes frustratingly stuck, uh, sometimes just, you know, you know, like, what, what, why is this still here, you know, residues. <clears throat> And some of this we can directly stop re-engaging in, obviously external activities, but these internal psychological mental activities are you know, frustratingly difficult to stop, seemingly because they, they seem so ingrained. And this is the problem of the person, is you know, the person can't really solve the person. <laughs> and the, the person... Well, the personal identity is generated through the patterns uh, and programs that have arisen in, in this life or from causes and conditions. You know. And you know, so we've always operated from that and as position. Mm. And not all these causes and conditions are by any means bad. You know, fortunately, we've all had adequate uh, care, um, guidance, um, skills, wisdom, to to arrive at a place where we can be with ourselves, you know. And not everybody can do that, even. Not everybody can manage ten minutes of silence. Five minutes of silence, even. It's a bit much for some people. <sighs> yeah. You know, so that the person package generally requires whole lot of conditions to keep it supported and it, it can't find them on its own. It needs to be have sights and sounds and stimulations and progress and development and things to 
get involved with before it can even hold itself together. And that's the sadness of the of the uh, um, of the being. Mm. Causes and conditions. So we've been coming from our skills base as individuals, our aspirations, our sense of, yeah, I could try this aspiration, some kind of energy, and using sati, mindfulness, to bear this in mind and to. Uh, begin to apply frame, fly that to reasonable frames of reference, such as this physical body, and what's really there with it. This gives us a possibility of beginning to almost by this particular just a shift of focus, and suddenly able to individually recognise a very real tangible, palpable, experienceable realm or world, which is not the one that we might normally operate with, you know, in terms of you know, the, the sense contact, or even in terms of some of the drives that, get us, that, that form us. And we begin to see those drives are actually themselves uh, uh, problematic, the drive to be, the drive to have, the drive to become the drive to control, the drive to get rid of, you know, these kind of more powerful drives we can begin to acknowledge are not, not only don't work, but there's an alternative. And so one thing I've, again, the person can't really solve these, but we come to some of the basic structuring of how jitta becomes a person is space and time. Mm-hmm. which we don't even really acknowledge as a construction. Assume it's, it's a real entity, and time is hours and minutes and days and years. And you just begin to question that. Yeah, really? So how come you're remembering, you're touching into bits of yesterday and five years ago, and you're still carrying things from ten years ago, and how come you, you know... You have all that, and how come we still keep him right now imagining a future? Where, where's all that now? How, how real is that time as a something that's a past, the future in it? If it has no past and future in it, really, well, what, is it, what does even present mean? You know, there's, there's just that which arises with different potentials in it for excitement and eagerness and dejection and all that. <clears throat> and they press in particular ways. This is called vipaka kama, the inheritance. Uh, and this can be recognized in the way we perceive others, initial perception of others. It could be anxiety tinged. It could be, you know, warmth, tinged with warmth. It could be a number of things, but the perception arises and as a triggering of something, you know. Mm-hmm. Karma. Old karma, vipaka karma, is a perception, a way of classifying or categorizing experience. And then from this particular energy start to rise up. Mm-hmm. 
and some of these are afflictive. And even when we get the perception of our body or our myself, it's a particularly very potent um, perception, even though you can't really pin it down. It's a perception probably tinted with some sense of lack or loss or incompleteness or dukkha because it that's it that it is <laughs> tinted with that uh, and then there's the sense of the reaction from that is well try to make it another way or get out of it or you know whose fault was it or what did I do wrong or um, how can I make it another way so I'll be something else so that triggering perception of oneself gives rise to these activity tendencies called sankara. And the most fundamental one is the me forming tendency, ahang sankara. So and there's a sense of that operating in terms of uh, time results pressures of karma, old karma. Also we recognize or begin to to at least take on, consider and contemplate what we sense as our space, our territory. How big is that? Are you 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 in your entire body? Are you in your head? Are you in a thought? Are you in a pain? Are you in a, a room? Are you in a nation? Where? Well, you recognize all these all these references shift, don't they? At certain times of day, we might recognize we're in America. Most of the time, we probably don't even that doesn't even enter our minds. So, where are you? Yeah, some of the time you probably think Valacitos, probably more than America, but that probably doesn't arrive all that many times. Where are you? You're in your karma, aren't you? <laughs> In your so so where are you? You know so where's the idea of existing in geographical space? Hmm? Most a lot of the time we're not really even in our bodies that much, just kind of touching in with it. Where are we? We're in, we're in the results of our karma and our potential for skillful, uh, wise, or compulsive actions. So space begins to also be rather notional. And with that, you can begin to acknowledge, well, there is such a thing as as more uh, appropriate time, which is the rhythmic and patient moderation of karma. Now you gently ease that. And using the rhythm of breathing, or the rhythm of the body, the rhythm of walking, it's rhythmic, so you could say it's kind of has a, has a beat to it. Find the rhythm. Find your rhythm. When you stand, when you walk. What feels like a comfortable, bodily, natural way of being. And so this way we're starting to hand the person assumed world, you know, we're starting to transform that into a world of 
nature of Dhamma. So we're led by the nature of how does the body walk, how does the body actually breathe, rather than me doing it. And again, you know, this is, so, you know, what's the timing of that? If time is even a relevant concept, rhythmic. But notice, generally what occurs when, you, when we lose rhythm, we go into some, there's a sort of speeding up, particularly when you're doing walking. You're walking on quite relaxed, and then a thought comes into your mind, you find your walking has changed. You feel tighter, more speedy. You know, perhaps we, you can recognize you are feeling the sensations in your legs, the movement of the body gently moving through space, and then something touches and things get a bit more constricted and a bit more speedy. You find ourselves buzzing a little bit. Oh, Whenever that occurs when you're walking, and indeed in sitting, the theme is just pause. So you cut time, go back to ground state, pause. Change space, which has perhaps become rather more narrow, wide, measureless space. Open, widen, widen, soften, until things seem stable again. You Back to nature, there's a sense of, ah, true connection, not spaced out, but a gentle, light, natural connection to the whole body. It's all here. Okay, how does we walk? How do we breathe? How does it happen? So there's a process in there. So these are some of the features we begin to acknowledge as disruptive and pull the plug on. Uh, really most of our practice I imagine is just doing that, you know, recognizing where we're getting speeding up, getting tight, getting rattled around, getting thrown, getting whirly, and where's the one plug I can pull out? Well, I can't say be happy right now. <laughs> You know, what I can say is pause. <laughs> I can't say get the answer now. Sort yourself out now. Do the forgiving now. Forgive people. You know, be better. Be happy. Get over it. No, that's a bit. That's further down the track. What I can do is pull the plug on the sense of time and space tightening around me. You know, pause, soften, widen. Uh, and just recognize that that itch, but I should I, I want to get out of this mess i want I want to be something that's, that's kind of comfortable, reasonable. I want to be able to live my life fully. What am I going to do in the future when i 'm seventy, ninety, eight hundred and twenty? What will happen when my teeth fall out i don't you know what happens if nobody pause <laughs> <laughs> you know just feeling those the the, the push of sangsaric express. And at that moment we don't know the future. That seems perfectly valid to me. I mean, how can you know the future? It just seems absolutely truthful. It's not, you know, I mean, there's that ripple of, on the person of anxiety. 
because for the person that's challenging, for the person bound in time, that's a bit challenging, understandable. Yeah. And when we meet, I don't know who you are, you don't know who I am, this could be messy. So yeah, there's a bit of anxiety there, that's fair enough. We pause, oh yeah. Actually the truth is, I don't know the future. There's no way one could. What can you know then? You can know, mm, now breathing in, out, opening, softening. You can know this any, well, I don't know about the future, but I know this makes me feel a little more comfortable, more settled, I'm coming home. Perhaps doing this more often might be beneficial. So this must be a major feature of our practice, just to, you know, a lot of Buddhism is, is couched in apparent negatives. In other words, stop doing this, refrain from that, disconnect from that. And why is it so negative all the time? Because that's the truth. Most of the matter, most things, just to stop doing the mess, <laughs> and then nature will kind of take care of itself to a large extent. But there are several things that are deliberately planted for our welfare. And we may think, yeah, mindfulness, uh, samadhi, meditation. No, no, before that, it's called right view, right view. Seemingly, maybe some seem speculative or a bit of Buddhist doctrine. And the Buddha said, I, I, know, I know nothing so beneficial as right view, nothing so harmful as wrong view. I know nothing that gives the mind so much benefit as right view. Okay, so what is right view? And it's couched in many ways, actually. It's a perspective, the perspective of Dhamma. And this essentially is, always refers to our experience is conditions causes and conditions arising, passing, changing, interacting. Yeah. Like many things, at first this doesn't seem like headline news or, well, what's that mean? What's a condition? It means it's dependent. It means these are yeah, temporary, changeable, relative qualities. Some of them arising and passing, moving, shifting. And just leave that one there. Yeah. And the opposite is, is wrong view, which is the view I am, I have, I'm other than, I have this and I'm, I'm not that. I am in this and, I, and I'm outside of that. Yeah. So I'm a separate entity from the experience. And that's probably, you know, a, a pretty normal place for many people to be. You know, I am going here, then I'll have, take a vacation, I'll go over to the lakes, I'll do this, and I'll have a nice time, take some photos, come back, and then I look at the photos, what a great time I had there. Yeah. And in the future I'll plan to go to another place, have that experience there. In the meantime, I've got to have this rather tedious experience, because I only get two weeks of the good experience. A year, I have a 
kind of humdrum experience of getting by, getting a living, so forth. There's some nice breaks in it. Go and see my friends, hang out here, you know, do some interesting stuff. I'm having experiences. And naturally I like good ones, I don't want the bad ones, but I'll make do with best I can. Then when I sit and meditate, I realise, yeah, there's a lot more experiences I'm having, which is, here is my pain, I've got that one. Here is my sorrow, I've got that one. Here is my frustration. Wow, I've got quite a lot of experiences here. Um, it'd be nice to go to a meditation retreat and get some good experiences. <laughs> go to a meditation retreat. Yeah, well, yeah, some good, but some pretty rough stuff there, in there. So, what's on the menu? Dukkha. <laughs> I take a photograph of that. So hopefully we, you know, trying to soften some of the blow of that with um, his experience where maybe there's less pressure, maybe there's just less things you have to do and that's nice. And you go to somewhere people are kind and supportive and it's really a pleasant place and people are looking after you, that's a nice thing to have. And maybe with that, something you relax as you get some of insights and some warm-heartedness and you begin to shrug off some difficult stuff and you feel a lot better. And you might even have a a bit of samadhi now and then. And that's kind of nice because you can then feel, you know, you're coming up to scratch on the meditation circuit. (laughs) (laughs) And a few insights. And then you go home, you think, oh, wow, great time there. And now I'm back in this again. So next time I'm going to retreat, I'll try and get back to that stuff I had last year. And of course this is movement in time again, uh, generally frustrating. Uh, now one of the things that uh, the right view teaches us is there isn't a person having an experience. That's the problem. person having an experience is always going to be stuck in space and time. And therefore, the person having experience is always thrown around in space and time, from this place to that place, from this movement, from the future, the past, the longed for, the regretted, the remembered fondly, and the, and the wished for wistfully, and the dreaded, and the, all that. And they'll be thrown around in a geographical space where we experience separation. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of the, the running on, isn't there, to get to the sweet spot again. Now, right view is teaching us there isn't a person having an experience. There is experience unfolding, and part of that experience that unfolds is the series of conditions that we call a person. That's part of what unfolds in this process as we touch ground, as we begin to not place a great deal of emphasis on our personal idiosyncrasies, we start to, okay, 
you know, there's there, but I can witness them. There's a sort of unfolding, you know, whereby when it gets more and more clearly, experiences unfolding, it, it produces a person. And sometimes that person is extraordinarily painful. Sometimes it's it's definitely well-meaning and having some enjoyable times and doing some good things. Uh, and still experiences separation and change. Ongoing. Mm. And actually there isn't a person having an experience. There's an experience having a person, creating a person. This is one of the things that qualities that right view presents in many different ways. It's extremely significant because it takes the pressure out of meditation and it gives the space, the natural space of dispassion. Viveka is the beginning of stepping back and dispassion is more like a not really getting so much into opposing and favouring stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we can't force this or bluff it or bluff ourselves into it, but with increasing deepening and realisation, you know, you can recognise, yeah, there are pleasant and unpleasant, but you don't really get so thrown into them. There's an increasing sense of, well, this is going to change and, you know, and cling to this one and f- fight against that one. So it's this sense of dispassion which begins to operate, a uh, growing realisation uh, which begins to loosen the clutching sense or grasping, upadana. And that changes the texture of experience. Experience when there's less clutching, grasping, fighting, resisting, blocking, pushing against, angling for, becomes much more sweet, much more even, much more livable, much more natural. There's a sense of things flowing. And all kinds of stuff starts to deconstruct. Fear, greed, hatred, worry, all kinds of stuff just starts to fizzle out because it's not being fed. Mm. This is called the stilling of sankharas. They become quiet and mm, and then there can be the abandonment and the relinquished destruction of craving. Mm. Because you just... But really helpful, you know, and then this is considered, you know, the movement to Nibbana, is that the dispassion, ending craving, abandoning of the self-creations, and realisation Nibbana. That's a trajectory. A person can't do that. So right view is perhaps first considered by the person, taken on, thought about, mm-hmm. uh, and just you know begin to at least start to operate from particularly that beginning with viveka, the ability to disengage from what we know is toxic and not get reactive to it. 
not feeling guilty, embarrassed, you know, not trying to make something that's been born not born. We have to allow it to be born, to arise and poop pass through. However embarrassing that is personally. <laughs> Quite humbling stuff. Uh, to have said it say, with all its whatever it says, you know. Uh, and then rising, passing through. One there's a realization of, you know, there's some subsiding of that. And taking beginning to get a sense of the space that can allow that and the time it takes to allow that. And natural we call it you know, natural time and it changes dependent upon the nature of the sankara. Some things kind of poof flash out quite quick. Some things just seem to slowly whimper, whimper, whimper until they fade. You stay with it to the last little squeak and the, even the after sensing, oh, that lovely sense of space and ease. And what, stay there, because right in there you begin to sense the arising of something beautiful, personally realizable. Mm. And very often this is expressed in a heart of goodwill, you know, a kind of sense of benevolence, loving benevolence. And it, it can be quite quiet first, just the warmth and the relief and the gratitude and the benevolence. As I said, this is the really the quality of the chitta when it's in resonance. It's mild, it's, it has a gentle pleasure to it. Mm. And then even that trace can also be sensed and received gratefully. How lovely to have a kind of quality of the lightness, the light-heartedness, the warmth of release. And then that subside also. Mm. So staying with, giving things the full time. In the full space. These are conditions. Person tends to want to cut things and shape it up into some into something they can remember or become. And then really an act of great faith is to recognise it's all being integrated, you know. You're like reforming. And it would kind of do it by itself. It's certainly good to keep pointing out and making note of some of those guiding points. Mm. Touching the ground, pausing, opening, softening, staying with, releasing time, releasing, you know, whatever. These points that you begin to make your part of your path, your practice path. And this is something each individual will kind of outline for themselves, but it carry it, it generally goes in one particular line. You know, presence, groundedness, certainly softening the time, base of achievement, 
development, becoming, getting rid of. There's a certain softening and widening that occurs with that. Viveka. Staying with that, bearing it in mind, mindfulness. So this is mindfulness based on liberation. Of all the many ways in which this faculty of mind, mindfulness, can be used, for Dhamma practice we use it based on liberation, bearing liberation in mind, bearing right view in mind, as the fundament, as the origin of it. So right view is these are causes and conditions. There are skillful ones and unskillful ones. They have results. Right view, there is karma. There is that which has been enacted and still reverberating and still generating your world. And there's also um, skillful deeds that begin to challenge that world, nudge it. There's what's called another world. We could say just even becoming to experience one's body somatically rather than visually. Mm? Experiencing one's sense of being in a more spacious way. Beginning to touch into other aspects of mind that we perhaps we barely noted, our ability to be receptive, attentive, open, empty, you know, rather than the ways of the doing. So there is another world. Mm. And there is certainly, you know, you begin to recognize, oh, if you went this way, if this is developed, surely this must lead to or open into something measureless, untrammeled, free from ill will, free from the pressures. Mm, Nibbana, the unbound, the unfettered, the secure, the refuge, the peaceful, the stable, the island. All metaphors, of course. Causes and conditions. No one has an experience. Experiences create a person. Uh, what is it that creates a person? Sankara and the formative tendencies. Now, these are called, you see them written as mental formations, jitta sankara, sometimes karma formations. People have a lot of problems with this word. Uh, kaya sankara, body formation or bodily program. And vajji sankara, verbal, language, thought, the ability to form concepts. And the person is structured through the arising and the meshing of those. We become, in some ways, what we think, or the way our thoughts run. Keep telling us, forming us, who we are. You know, the person who, most of our self is carried as a, as a series of thoughts. Programs that generate thoughts with narratives, stories, opinions, photographs, all, this is Vajji Sankara, articulation, forming concepts, extremely potent, uh, active um, agency to generate a person, 
probably much more so than a body in many ways. Chitta Sankara, the way we triggered our senses of what we enjoy and what we don't enjoy, what we feel challenged by, what we feel welcomed by, perceptions, and of course, much more than that, complex perceptions generated by perceptions of mother, father, brother, sister, what I did, what I didn't do, how people saw me, how I was, how I wasn't, generated by perceptions that have a triggering quality. Perceptions based upon sights, sounds, actions in the past. So Jitta Sankara, this forming, so immediate and so unchecked uh, that, well, this is where I am. You know, it, you hard, we don't really see it arising because we're in it. You know, until perhaps there's moments when you touch something beneath that for a second or a moment. And, well, that's just the memory. That's just the painful memory. It's just a strong, difficult mood arising. Condition. What does it take to handle that, to place the right kind of attention around that condition, to skillfully support it as it moves, without it snagging, without resistance, without ill will, without recrimination, without favouring? What does it allow that heart formation so often called mental formation but it's really a heart formation to just there you go, there you go all the time in the world there you go, there you go holding it with dispassion well what really helps is to plant right view to keep remembering even conceptually to adjust, to use that to adjust one's focus. These are conditions. Mm-hmm. Not to feel too, you know, sort of pressed by them. So giving the space. Planting right view. This is bodily formation, kaya sankara. These are energies occurring that give shape to, to give the experience of body. Textures, pressures, warmth, flows, spasms, internal movements, rapid, fast, slow, pulsing, jangling, movements, pressures, heat, spasms, cold, you know, tingling, suffusions. Stuck, rigid, hard, firm, watery, slushy, foggy, spinning. Mm, this is embodiment. Mm. And right in the centre of that, we call it the midline, or we call it the upright axis, but actually you can access it reclining as a centre within that. If we just, you know, get or put the details on hold for a moment, find the ground, find the midline, and then there's the textures weaving and pulsing around around that. And right there's where you want to be able to sustain that focus 
mindful of that. This is a body in a body. I am mindful of that. And I am mindful with right view. These are causes and conditions. These are conditions that are occurring, been generated through, well, fundamentally birth into a body, and then all the emotionally based contractions and resistances that have got embedded there. Don't know why, how, but there's this, these stuck things. So we're sustaining that right view in reference to embodiment, to, the, to this body. Then there isn't the, oh, you know, how should I make it this way or that way or whatever. What, so then the, the approach is, you know, to this experience is what's needed, what helps you, not what helps you personally, what helps this body now, this somatic body now, what is needed now for this impression. So it's not, you know, something to eat or see, it's, it's somatic. It's maybe just a little more space, a little less doing, a little less meing in it, a little more sympathy, a little more let it be, relax, give it all the time in the world. Yeah. A little more right view, causes and conditions. Yeah. The conditions are that which has arisen causes. Mm. Causes are our new karma. Yeah. The sense of how I, from this position, how the reaction occurs. You know, I'm causing something else. So, in a way, this can, reminds us with karma of the potency of just how, what the sankara is. Is it going to jump? Is it going to get on the sankara express? Is it going to jump onto that train? Or is it going to say, well, actually there is another way in which I, there could be a response if I pause and wait. And the response could be, allow a little more, a little more, bear with it a little more, Incline a little more, just sustain a little longer quality of goodwill. Now here we're not, you know, it's not huge, strong emotional input we're looking for, but just, you could say the primary quality of goodwill is just to say, how can I help? What's needed? Not even how can I help, but what's needed? Just that gentle sympathy of rather than stop doing this, could I have that? <laughs> Just what's, what's helpful now for you, for this experience? What is it asking for? Generally saying, could wait a little, don't react, find some space, let it bang around, you know. And maybe it says, oh, it needs a center. He needs a mooring post. Okay, where's my feet? Where's my back? It just needs some ground. Let's go there. That's what it needs. It's swinging around. and It just needs something to hold it steady, but not to crush it. Ground, maybe 
Perhaps we just move a little bit, it would be oh, softened. So we do some walking, feel the flow of the body, movement of breathing. Maybe that's, that's what it's asking for. Don't freeze. Don't lock. Maybe it's asking for that somatically. So that you get a sympathy where chitta and the body meet, then it's almost there comes a response from chitta from, from the heart rather than from the person. And the chitta response sometimes is surprising and not, not necessarily verbal. Something, uh, something seems to, uh, you know, something seems to widen, soften. And the quality of gentle, supportive presence. Jitta speaking, jitta manifesting. Then, you know, then, then the somatic thing can change. Suddenly that really locked place somewhere up top begins to drain. Or the empty, aching place begins to fill with a quiet presence. These things happen by themselves. If we plant the right seed, then rewilding does take place. You know, the green shoots do start coming in because we planted the right seeds, cleared the ground, mindful of right view, causes and conditions. Sometimes expressed, there are results. There are good results from good deeds. There is a good result from that which is offered, given, relinquished, sacrificed. Mm. These are conditions that will, you know, we can do. And we then need to also take the time to, to drink those in, not to cut, not to clip as that happened yesterday, or she did that for me two days ago, just to reside in the resonances of the the generous, the kind, the beautiful, the supportive, to reside in those. So those qualities are still there in the field of our embodied mind. The results of good deeds, the results of skillfulness, Results of fortunate circumstances. Mm. There is mother, there is father, there is a sense of being in an interpersonal connection we inherit. And, you know, both for some negative effects, probably, and also just bearing in mind we have been fed, you know, supported as, as t- tots, we, little babies, we not, would not have survived a day without somebody, you know, holding us together. Somebody giving us a shelter, somebody coming up with the food, somebody putting themselves out for our welfare, however their misdeeds or lacking, lack, you know, missing bits were they were persons they were they were humans with their 
afflictions and limitations, so we touch into that. We have been offered something. Let's return to some of that. This is very significant, very important to remember to begin to cultivate and, and turn to the skillful. So right view is also causes and conditions, but then to incline towards those conditions. Now, you know, the person the afflicted person tends to come back to their afflictedness. It's not a sangsaric habit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's what I call it, you know, licking the blood of my wounds. There's a kind of appetite for it. <laughs> licking the blood of my much licked wound. I'm going to give it another lick. <laughs> Strange kind of bitter taste to it. <laughs> And yet, because it forms the person, where you know, without us choosing it, we the person inclines back to that somehow. It's some vague notion. I don't know if it's a notion even, but you keep returning to that, and tasting the blood of a much licked wound again and again. Okay, but then taste the sweetness of your health. Uh, of your much neglected health, your much neglected benefits, your much forgotten blessings. Taste that. This is, uh, you know, recollection, part of mind cultivation, just so we begin to get a bit more balanced about it all. And then when the heart drinks this in, it's going to take the strength and the confidence and the happiness of that. And it's certainly going to allow meditation to blossom more fruitfully. There is this world, there is another world. Another aspect of right view. Here's the personal world. Stories and birth, aging, sickness, death. There is another world. and So we're just touching into some of the potential for that as we meditate. There's another realm we enter, you know, which is slightly different. There's a shift. And this is the big, you know, as we begin to acknowledge that, there is, without any effort, there is a, a natural shift, just like coming into balance when you've been leaning over. As you recognize the leaning or the crumpledness, and you have the aspiration, there could be a straighter, your body starts to wriggle itself upright and you know, oh yeah, this is balance. Well jitter does the same. When it begins to touch into other domains of being where there's less pressure, there's less belief in pressure as being necessary. <laughs> there's less belief in time. There's less belief in the stories. Jitter starts to realign oh, to something more but there's another world. Uh, another domain and beyond. There are those beings who, in this lifetime, embodied, you know, with sense faculties, who have by themselves realized liberation. 
This must be the way. This must be the way, this way. And for someone who begins to find the shift, it's called the stream entry, you know, well, maybe there's more to do, but this must be the way. Can't be any other way. This must be the way, because I felt the shift. It's not even an intellectual certainty, it's like an emotional certainty. No, you just got to uh, take in, drink in the, the, that. And what does that mean? Bear it in mind. Notice the places where the spasms or the pressures or the resistances or the uncertainties still have room. The favouring, the opposing, the conceiving of oneself and others. Mm. What's happening? And the Buddha famously, in in a kind of dialogue, said, you know, he was talking to a a celestial being who uh, could, it's called the Skywalker, and this celestial being could, with one stretch of his legs, straddle the earth. So huge strides. I think it was the earth, anyway, huge strides. He says, even though I keep doing I don't seem to get to the end of the world by doing this. Because you just go round and round. Yeah. And of course, you know, you can take that literally or however you like, but it really it refers to the ongoing movement in space and time. And the Buddha said, no, you don't get to the end of the world like that. Um, In this very body and with its consciousness, perceptions and feelings, this is the arising of the world, this is where the world ceases, and this is where the path to the ceasing of the world manifests, in this body, this fathomless body with its consciousness, perceptions and feelings. This is where the world arises, this is where it ceases, this is the path to the cessation of that. It's an enormous kind of affirmation of the value of embodiment. Mm-hmm. So where? When your body, where's that going to be? In your chin, knees? Don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Where else could it be? In that somatic experience where you can sense this is where I've become something and I'm stuck in my story and this is where that world dissolves. That narrative, that who I am, that sort of starts to soften a little. There is another. There's a domain of liberation. And you track. Actually, when you sense it, how did that happen? How did that... Yeah, where was the movement of that in this embodied sense? Bear in mind, embodied sense doesn't just mean what you see with your eyes. It's something that also entails powerfully the spaces around us, the quiet places, the resonances. And this is one of the gifts, because if there wasn't somewhere really beautiful and healthy, there, in that, in that somatic presence, you would not be sane. 
you you would be you wouldn't be able to sit still for ten minutes, let alone half an hour or so. You don't probably notice it because it doesn't scream. But in the balancing, for example, in the ground, in the balance, within this textured experience, and this is with Buddha's own insight, where after years of trying to beat this body down and get out of it, he remembered, you know, the famous story which I present, as I do many times, sitting under a tree, remembering being a child and this moment when there was no pressure to be anything, felt safe, sheltered. There was no pressure to get things done, to become something, to sort something out. Relief from that, the sweet spot. And he tuned into that sweet spot. Yeah, where's yours? Perhaps it is a child. Perhaps it's the last time we touched it and we thought, yeah, that was way back when we used to play with a hosepipe in the, in the garden <laughs> or sandcastles on the beach or just sitting quietly in a wood somewhere or being held by my grandfather. You know, Perhaps there's a sweet spot somewhere you know, that your body still knows because you haven't moved forward in time. The resonances are still there. And part of that felt reson what was it like when it was safe, when it was gentle, when it was held, when there was no pressure? What was that like? Is there anywhere? Hmm? Maybe it's right at the end of your breath. If you wait, if you wait. Maybe it's right in the movement of your chest if you stay with that. Maybe it's in a certain quality that opens in your face. Which, where you breathe in, breathe out. But it's there. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to sit still for half an hour. That's for sure. Bring it to mind. Where are you comfortable? Bring it to mind. It's your gift. These are you know, conditions that we may not notice, that we may have thought we've run past, that may seem, well, so what? Actually, they have carried deep resonances that are conducive to freeing up the old industrialized sankharas of the go to the wasteland. Anyone?